The following audio is from a sermon series from the book of Acts. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the reading of God's word from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Seated. Check. Good morning. I'm not on. Good morning. I'm still not on. Good morning. There we go. <clears throat> Welcome to Sacred City. My name is Justin. As the lights are coming up. <laughs> Uh, we've got a couple announcements real quick. Uh, visitor forum, if, if you're new to Sacred City and you want to know a little bit more about us, uh, visitor forum right after uh, this gathering, right next door in the cottage. There'll be a light lunch provided so you can come. The, actually, the house lights do come up during the preaching. There we go. Um, and you can find out a little bit more about Sacred City, our vision, our philosophy, ministry, all of that fun stuff. And then secondly, for any men who are interested in going to a conference uh, Desiring God Pastors Conference. We take a group of guys. Last week, year, I think we had about 14 or 15 guys that went with us. It's February 3rd through the 5th, so we're giving you a few months' notice here. It's up in Minneapolis. We drive up there. Uh, John Piper and some great, there's gonna be some great uh, speakers every year. It's a great time to hang out with some dudes, um, to go deeper into the gospel together, to get challenged, to um, get overwhelmed with books. It's one of my favorite things. You walk into this bookstore and there's like, it's like a Mecca. It's amazing. It's my happy place. I love it. Uh, so it's a great conference. So put that on your calendar, uh, February 3rd through the 5th. And again, if this is your first time here at Sacred City, I want to welcome you. My name is Justin. And uh, this is our gathering as a piece of what we do, uh, as a piece of who we are as a people. And I just want to welcome you uh, here this morning. And I'm going to go ahead and pray. And we're going to jump in. Uh, I've been pretty excited to, uh, to preach this section um, of scripture this morning. Let me get all set up here. <clears throat> uh-huh. Okay, let's do this. Father, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for the perfection of who you are, that you are holy. And many of us don't want to say that because that is a um, scary word. We know that we're not holy, that we can't even keep our mouth shut sometimes, that we can't even keep our hands to ourselves sometimes, that we can't definitely keep our thoughts pure, that we are not holy, uh, we make mistakes, that we are, uh, I think scripture would say that we're wicked, that we actually have wicked hearts and uh, that we need uh, salvation. We need to be made right because you are a holy God. But I thank you, Father, that it's not through our own efforts and it's not through our own striving and it's not through our, through our own moral performance that we are made right with you. But it's through your initiative, 
your acting. You sent your son to live the life we couldn't live. And he then died the death that we all deserve for the punishment of our sins. And then he was resurrected and ascended to the right hand of God and now offers salvation to us through this thing called faith. We would place our trust that we would place, we would lean on Jesus. We wouldn't say, this is why I'm holy. Look at my record. We'd say, this is why I'm holy. I'm pointing to Jesus. I'm resting on his performance on our behalf. Father, let us see that clearly today. The hearts that we have that are, as that old hymn said, they're prone to wander. Would you bring them back to you? Uh, We are the sheep of your pasture. Would you rustle us up and bring us back to you? Would you allow us to hear the gospel this morning with new ears? Would you do something unique and specific in each and individual heart? Would you, Father, think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords so that I could be an instrument uh, that your divine and authoritative word would flow through with humility and confidence this morning? Would you do all these things for your glory, for your name's sake, and for our joy? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, over the past few weeks, we've been studying the book of Acts. And basically what the book of Acts um, is all about is the history of the Christian church. Where has it come from? What caused it to go from this small group of mainly Jewish people to literally a worldwide phenomenon? Um, I I was discussing over the past couple of weeks with this friend I have, he's homosexual atheist and we're, we're arguing and he, we're going back and forth and, and you know, he, he's arguing for evolution. He's arguing for different things. And, and I just kept coming back to Jesus. It kept coming back to Jesus. It kept coming back to, then I finally said, okay, well, what about just the phenomenon of the Christian church? This little group of ragtag, poor people go from nobodies to a worldwide movement. Literally in, a, in just in a couple hundred years, they go from this tiny little sect in the Roman empire, which Rome just had all kind of a pantheon of gods, right? They go from this little sect in the Roman Empire to actually ruling the Roman Empire with with Constantine's edict, right? It says, this is now a Christian nation. How do they go from this little ragtag to ruling the greatest nation on earth, to being the dominant force in the greatest nation on earth? And this is where my friend, he he just shows his his hand. Well, yeah, yeah, that's pretty awesome. But let's just go on to something else. No, 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 don't just dismiss that. That's something significant, right? And so what we're doing is we're studying the beginning. We're studying how it started. Last week we saw from, from the historian Luke, from the book of Acts, that the reason the church exists, we saw this a couple weeks back, is because Jesus was resurrected. And Jesus was ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And then last week we saw that once Jesus was ascended, he sent the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to his 120 followers that were waiting for him. And then things got pretty exciting last week, right? God said he had this great work for all of his followers to do, but they couldn't do it on their own, that they needed some kind of special power, special power that came with the Holy Spirit. And then last week we saw this petrified pansy Peter turn into a powerful preacher who boldly proclaimed the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. And then what happened? 3,000 people were converted, all right? 3,000 people went from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. 3,000 people went from dead in their trespasses and sin to made alive in God, in Jesus Christ. And they were added, it said 3,000 people were added to their numbers in one day. Okay? So here it is. Peter preached Jesus. 
The Spirit cut them to the heart. They turned from their sins and they were baptized in water. And then God gave them the Holy Spirit. That was last week, right? It was a huge day for the Christian church. This is the, within the first 50 days of Christianity. This is a big reason why we're here today. It all started right here in the book of Acts. Now listen to what um, a historian, he used to teach at Yale University. It's Kenneth Scott Latourette. This is what he said. Listen to this. The more one examines the various factors which seem to account for the extraordinary victory of Christianity, the more one is driven to search for a cause underlying them all. Okay, Yale professor of history. Listen. It is clear that at the very beginning of Christianity, there must have occurred a vast release of energy virtually unequaled in history. Without it, the future course of the religion is inexplicable. Okay? So he's saying the only explanation for the, for the rise and advancement of Christianity is at the very beginning, there must have been a vast release of energy that we can't even explain. That's what, this is what a Yale historian is saying. Now listen, then, then he, like my buddy, he shows his hand. Well, why this occurred, I mean, why this occurred may lie outside the realm in which modern historians are supposed to move, right? So this happened. It had to be awesome. I have no idea why. There was a vast release of energy, right? I don't know what happened, okay? Well, That's a modern day historian, but an ancient historian, Luke, right here in the book of Acts, tells us what that release of energy was. That release of the energy of energy was Jesus being ascended, releasing the Holy Spirit to fill this little ragtag group of 120 followers with his authority, with his power. Jesus said, go make disciples. Behold, I'm going to be with you to the end of the age. How is Jesus with us? He sends us the Holy Spirit. All right. So Jesus, life death, his resurrection and ascension, the spirit's promise and then deliverance of power, Peter's explanation and his sermon, 3000 people get saved and cut to the heart. Can we ask the question now, now what? Now what? See, Luke shows us in this book of Acts, what happens when the spirit saves people? What happens God, here's what happens. I'm just going to answer this for you. God creates the Christian church. God creates the Christian church. When God saves people, he now creates this thing called the church. God supernaturally changed these people. And then, listen, God supernaturally changed them from death to life, from dark to light, from heart of stone to heart of flesh. And then they... In response to the gospel, they radically reshaped their lives. See, these people in the book of Acts, they didn't come to Jesus and then go back home and continue the same rhythms of life they had always had before. They didn't come to a meeting and go, oh, there's a hell? Oh, but there's a heaven? Oh, okay, I'll sign me up for that one. All right. Let's go back home. Everything's normal. See, they didn't receive the grace of God for the forgiveness of their sins and then just go back to work like nothing had ever happened. That would be proof 
that they didn't get it. That would be proof that their heart of stone had not become a heart of flesh and that they were dead in their trespasses, had not been made alive. Maybe they cognitively heard the message and said, okay, and they went back to their life. They didn't get it. The gospel didn't change them. See, Christianity is not first and foremost an assent to certain doctrines. Christianity is not, oh yeah, that's, you know, I don't want my kid to be a moral monster, so I'll go bring my kids to church so they're going to be moral, and it's probably the right thing to do and the good thing to do. That's not Christianity. I was talking to a, a young man this week, and I said, um, what, what do you think Christianity is? And he said, it's a way of life. And I said, I, I know why you say that, I can hear that where you, your background and what, what's, where you've been raised when you say that. But Christianity is not first and foremost a way of life. Christianity is Jesus. We are morally enabled to please God. We are dead in our trespasses. When he looks at us, we're morally incapable of obedience. We're morally incapable of loving God. We're morally incapable. So because of that, we are destined for eternal judgment, condemnation, hell. We are condemned as sinners. We are standing before God's tribunal as dead in our trespasses, as guilty. And the only thing that's going to happen between us and hell, the only reason we don't get eternal judgment and damnation and condemnation is because God in his grace sent Jesus Christ, God's very own son, to live the perfect life that none of us can live and then die the death that we all deserve. Take the condemnation and take the judgment that we all deserve and then he offers it to us by faith. Christianity is not a way of life primarily. Christianity is Jesus Christ's substitutionary death on our behalf that we get by grace through faith. I asked him, I said, are you a Christian? He said, well... I believe in God, but I don't think I've been awakened yet. I nearly jumped off my seat. I was like, you get it. Praise God, you get it. It's not a, you know what? This is a good idea. I like this Jesus cat. All right. I'm a, I'm a Christian. You know, you're not. You, you don't become a Christian on your own. You don't even get to choose it. You have to be like in, the, in his words, awakened to it. You have to have your eyes opened. This week I read a story of, a, of an, a, she, an atheist um, news anchor. And she was going to Tim Keller's church in New York City because her boyfriend asked her to. And she was not wanting anything to do with it. She was on the far left leaning. Uh, she, you know, she's a, um, a journalist, a, po- a popular journalist, uh, Fox News journalist. And she's le- but she was left leaning. And she did not want anything to do with Republicans. Didn't want anything to do with these evangelicals. She didn't want anything to do with Christianity. She started going to this Tim Keller's church, one of uh, my mentors from afar, and started hearing the gospel. And it was so different than what she thought it was. She thought it was just right-leaning stuff. And she realized the gospel was so different. And then all of a sudden, one week, she was, she's sitting there and she goes, Oh, no. I am one. Oh, no. And she was mad. She tried to run away from it and she, for months and she couldn't get away from it. Why? Because the hound of heaven had opened her eyes. Because she had been awakened to the reality of the gospel. She's a sinner. The only way back into relationship with God, the only thing that will please you, give you meaning and purpose in life, is a relationship with God. She had been converted, not even wanting to. That's the way Christianity works. That's the way it happens. All right? So, today, what we're going to see now, 
What are the implications of that? When God does what he did last week and just saves 3,000 people, just comes down and just wipes them out, what are the implications? What is a life that's been saved by God looks like, look like? What are the implications of believing the gospel? How does the gospel, once believed, work from the inside out and change your life? See, when, you, when God saves you, when you hear the gospel and it really sinks down and the spirit brings it to bear on your heart, it will affect every part of your life. And listen to me, I'm going to, I'm going to, I think there's people in here that you think you're saved and you're not. I think there's, I know it. There's people in this room right now. You've gone to church your whole life. You could repeat the gospel, but you're unconverted. You have not been awakened. You have no desire to please God. You have no, no love for the holiness of God. You have no love for God. You're maybe scared of hell because your parents really beat that one in on you. Right? And you're thinking like, I've been, I've touched the oven before and oh, I don't want nothing to do with that. Right? That has nothing to do with it. Do you love God? Do you have a desire for holiness? Do you have a desire? Or is the club more appealing to you? Is the arms of a man more appealing to you? Right? Christians love God above all things. And we can't do that on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to make that happen. We're still prone to wander. But there's many people in this room that you think you're saved and you're not. You think you're converted and you're not. And we need to know what are the implications of believing the gospel so that I can go back and say, Oh, am I a Christian? Not just because your parents brought you up in the faith and and you just ascribe to their faith. Have you been awakened? Have you been reconciled? Have you been changed? This is some of the proof. See, when God saves you and when you hear the gospel and it really sinks down and it awakens you, the spirit brings it to bear on your heart. And this is what happens. It affects every other aspect of your life. Now, it might not be just like, boom, radical. It's kind of like you got to work it down in sometimes. You believe the gospel and you got to work it down into the It's like, okay, I'm going to tell my wife here. My wife makes great cookies, okay? But one time, it was just a few months ago, she got everything together, she worked it all up, and then she went to the cabinet to get the chocolate chips. And there was like an eighth of a bag of chocolate chips or something. Eh, no big deal. She just, ah, she pours it in there. She tries to work it in. I take a bite of a chocolate chip cookie lacking any chocolate chips. This is the nastiest cookie I've ever tasted in my entire life. Complete counterfeit, complete false advertising. Chocolate chip cookies with no, why? Because those chocolate chips hadn't, there weren't enough of them and they hadn't been worked down into every aspect of that dough, right? You can't just dump a few in. You can't just dump them all on one side. You've got to work those chocolate chips down into all of the dough. I'm an expert in eating chocolate chips. So I, I know about this stuff. I know about this, right? Listen, you can come to a gathering like this. You can hear the gospel and you can respond and God can save you and change you radically in this moment. But the new life, listen, the new life, the gospel that's been given to you has got to be worked out and worked down into every other aspect of your life. It's got to be exercised for you to grow into maturity. So. Let's get into this right now. Let's get into the text. What happens when these people 
uh, get saved, what happens when God converts them, when God gives them a new heart, when they've been awakened. What happens here? Look at verse 42. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. When you're there, say there. All right, let's read it. And they devoted themselves. Okay, stop. (laughs) They are, first thing we see, God saves them, God gives them a new heart, and what happens? They are devoted. Devoted. Now, what does that mean? I don't think we use that word very often anymore. Devoted isn't a word that you, you throw around too often. What does it mean to be devoted? Right? Uh, the Greek lexicon, this is what it, the Greek English lexicon, this is what it says. It means to stick close by or to be close at hand. To stick by or to be close at hand. To attach oneself to. To wait on or be faithful to someone or something. To stick by or attach oneself. Now, how many of you, we still probably don't get that. How many of you have played competitive sports? I'm going to have you engage with me this morning because it's warm in here and we're a little drowsy, I feel like. All right. So can I ask you, what kind of commitment did the coach ask from you? Did you, did you show up that first day and he goes, hey, here's our competition dates. Whenever you want to practice, just come on out. Come on out and practice. No big deal. You know, we don't want to take too much time away from your family or you know, you, you got to study and we know you have a social life. So just have fun. But here's the dates. Show up for game day. Right. I'm being facetious, obviously. Right. Was it OK that you missed practice? Absolutely not. Good coaches. What? Expect complete devotion to the team. Right. They know that there is a direct correlation between devotion and improvement. All coaches know that if you devote yourself to practice, you won't, if you don't devote yourself to practice, you're not going to perform well when it comes time for game day, right? And I think our, our society, we, we get that. We get what devotion is when it comes to sports. Coaches, what? Expect children to miss school. Expect our children to skip church. Wasn't too long ago that there were no ball games on Sunday. That there were no practices on Sunday. That it was the Lord's Day. But now, if you expect to play, you've got to show up on Sunday and you've got to have practice, right? They, coaches expect kids to sacrifice the free time with their friends. They expect kids to forego getting a job. They expect kids to do all these things. Why? To be devoted to a sport. To be devoted. That's what it means to be devoted. That's a pretty good picture of devotion. You sacrifice other things and you say, I'm sticking to this sport. I'm sticking to this team. I'm placing it as a preeminent spot in my life. And I have to sacrifice other things that I want to do. I'm stuck to it. I'm devoted to it. I'm committed to it. So right away, we see these, these 120, or actually 3,120 believers that just became Christians. The first thing that happens is now all of a sudden, they're devoted to something different. Their heart is connected. They're sticking close to something different. But let's ask the question, what are these new believers in Jesus devoted to? Let's keep reading. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. To the apostles' teaching. Now, this word in the Greek is didache or didache. I can't even remember how to say it now off the top of my head. All right? It's, it's, it means doctrine. It literally means, it literally says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. A specific type 
of teaching, a specific set of teaching. They obviously did not believe that the mind and the intellect were just needed to be put on the, shel- the, the shelf now. Oh, the spirits come. Let's just float around and go by our heart and, and you know, do what we want to do. Absolutely not. When the spirit saved them, when he regenerated them, they, the first thing they do is devote themselves to the apostles' doctrine. They had just had a spiritual experience, but here is a, a key point. They knew that they didn't know. See, why is, why some, when some, of, some of the people that think they're Christian in this room, it's so dangerous. It's like a carbon monoxide that you're breathing in and you're dying because you don't even know what you don't know. You think you know him, but you don't know him because you know about him, because you know about religion and you know about Jesus and you know about what he did on the cross. You think you know him, but you're breathing in carbon monoxide and you're dying spiritually and you don't know him. So I'm hoping this morning that it wakens you, that you, 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 your eyes are open and you say, you know, I don't know what I don't know. And one, th- one proof that you've been saved by God, one proof that you've been awakened is that you have a desire to know stuff that you don't know before. You have a desire for doctrine, good doctrine, by the way, the apostles doctrine. The, see, they immediately say, oh man, these, most of these converts were Jewish. So they had grown up hearing the Old Testament taught, but they missed the point. Jesus showed up and they killed him. The point of the whole Old Testament shows up and they kill him. And then Peter preaches it and they're like, missed that one. We have a lot to learn. We need some good doctrine. Apostles, teach us. Right? So right away, we see that God's people have been made into the label that we like to put on them is learners. They're learners, right? They're hungry for doctrine. They're hungry for teaching. They don't want to be ignorant. They want to know more about the gospel. They want to know more about God. They want to know more about Jesus Christ. And they're devoted to learning doctrine. Now, they're not satisfied with this nominal understanding of the gospel They're seeking to learn and be taught. They were devoted to learning doctrine. And I'm just going to say, are you? Has that happened in you? you? Are you hungry for more? Are you hungry for more of God's word? Are you hungry to learn doctrine, to learn more about the gospel? It's an implication of being saved by God. Let's keep going. What else are they devoted to? Verse 42. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Now, fellowship, if you've been around church, you have no idea what fellowship means. This is not coffee and donuts in the foyer, all right? Man, we had a great time of fellowship last night, right? This is, that's just a weird language. This literally means, this. it's a Greek word, koinonia. Now listen, koina is, means common, Okay? It means common. Fellowship literally means the common life. They were devoted to a normal life lived together. There were no, it was a no, koinonia, the fellowship, the commonality of our life. It's a way of living. And this, we like to say it like this. It's a way of living life on life. 
See, they were devoted to doctrine and they were devoted to each other. They lived with each other. They lived close. Now I'm going to get into exactly what this looks like in a minute. I'm going to go on to the next one right now. Keep reading. So they were devoted to the apostles teaching to the doctrine. They were devoted to the fellowship. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, what the heck does that mean? That means they shared meals together, but it also means what the sacrament of the Lord's table, the Eucharist, the, the, the communion, the, the, the breaking of bread. The Lord's table. They were devoted to it. Now, what does that mean? We just saw. What does it mean to be devoted to something? Think, put this in the athletic endeavor. What does it mean to be devoted? Do you practice once a week? Right? Do you show up when you want to? Do you do it whenever you want to? Once a month? Once every six months? No. They do it as often as they come together. They do it, as we're going to see, day by day. How often do they take communion? Daily. Daily they do it. They were devoted to it. They did it often. It was meaningful and important to them. This is why we observe the Lord's table every single week, that it takes a prominent place in our gathering every single week because the early church did it. This is the beginning of the church. And lastly, what do we see? Verse 42, devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and what? The prayers. I love this. Some of your translations might just say praying, but they leave out the definite article, which is there in the Greek. It says they devoted themselves to the prayers. The prayers. This isn't the same as saying they were devoted to praying. Of course they were, but they were devoted when they came together. They were devoted to specific prayers that they prayed together as a community, like the Psalms. They prayed them together. It's called liturgy. It's why we do this. People go, well, I don't like praying, you know, set prayers and reading prayers. Why not? Your prayers are ridiculous. You know, they are God, forgive me for my sins, whatever they are. I have no idea which ones they are. I probably didn't actually sin this week, but just in case all of my sins, right? You don't ever say, forgive me for looking down on the poor. Forgive me for not being a good neighbor. Forgive me for not loving you like I should. That's why we pray like this, right? Or here's a good prayer. Father, please, for your glory and my joy, make my life really easy. Just make my kids obedient and help me get a, you know, my boss to love me and help me to get a raise and help. Like we, that's the stupid stuff we pray all the time, right? We come together, we pray the Psalms, we lament, we mourn, we weep, we rejoice. The sac or the liturgy teaches us how to pray. Because our liturgical prayers are straight from the Bible, right? Most of our prayers are straight from our sinful heart, right? So we see these new believers. They've got something special here, guys. They've got something special. They've been made into new spiritual people. And now they've transferred their devotion away from other things and onto God's word. They transfer their devotion onto the Christian community, onto the sacraments and onto liturgy. And look what happens. Verse 43. And awe or fear, great fear, the, new King, the King James says, and great fear or awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. See, everyone was filled with awe. What is that? It's a, it's a transcendence. It's an awareness that God is here. This is different 
This is different than playing cards with my buddies. This is a different type of community than the sports league. It's a different type of community than the moms getting together for book club or whatever it is. This is something different. There's God is here. He's transcendent. He's deep. He's powerful. He's meaningful. As they lived their lives together, as they learned doctrine together, as they prayed together and broke bread together, they were filled with a deep sense of awe and reverence for God. Man, and I, I'm going to tell you, I've been so aware of God's presence and God's just an awareness of God in my missional community as of late. It is an absolute just movement of grace. I, the spirit has been so, so real that we've got business owners, that people are coming, employees aren't performing the way they should perform. And instead of firing them, they sit them down and they have a gospel conversation with them and they give them grace. And other employees are looking at them going, you should fire that person. I don't understand it. Christians that are looking and going, fire them, fire them. They say they're Christians. But the gospel's at work and doing things that nobody else can understand. Things that our human society, our American society seems upside down and backwards. Judge them by their works, Christian. Judge them by their works. What? And you can't say, Jesus, judge, or Father, judge me by Jesus' works and give me grace while we're pointing the finger down at our, our employees or people that work with us and we say, you're not hacking it, fired. God is at work. He's saving people. He's bringing people into the community. He's causing marriages to be restored. I'm seeing phenomenal things and I'm just so aware of the normal. I mean, there's nothing special about what we're doing. We're breaking bread together. We're eating. We're praying. We're learning doctrine together. We're trying to live life on life throughout the week together. And God is doing something special. Why? Because that's how he set it up. But how, okay, so what does this look like, Justin? They're, they're devoted. What does devotion look like? What are you talking about? I don't know if my life can look like that. How did they do these things? What does it really look like? Look at verse 44. Luke doesn't pull any punches. He's going to explain it to us really clear. Verse 44. And all who, oh, what's that word? And all who believed were together. Okay. All who, I want to stay on that, but I'm not going to. All who believed were together. Now, this just should be shocking to us. We've got to have, remember what happened last week. Who is Peter referring to? Who is P- Peter referring to? Who is together? Do you remember the day of Pentecost? Do you remember that there were Jews from all, or the people from all nations? They spoke all different languages. They were coming together to hear P- P- Peter's sermon. All those people from different cultures, that they spoke different languages, and they had hardly anything in common. Poor and rich, black and white, male and female, these radically different people who were anything but together, they're definitely separate. Now Luke says they were together. Uh, This is phenomenal. He doesn't say they met together. He doesn't say that they came together. He says they were together. That's their identity. They were separate. They were different. They were individuals. Now they're together. This is who they are. Everyone who believed were together. This is shocking. 
See, that historian that I quoted earlier from Luke, one of the points he makes is Christianity was the first all-inclusive religion. Male, female, educated, uneducated, black, white, poor, whoever you are, you could become a Christian and keep some of your culture. To become a Jew, you have to become a Jew. To become, you know, to, to adopt an Islamic faith, you have to become Islamic. Christianity was all-inclusive. And we see that here in the early church. This is a radical change. These people have been made into family. They aren't a community of individuals anymore. They're together. They have been adopted into the family of God. And now they're, radic- they're being radically redefined by their new faith. Don't believe me? Keep reading. Look at verse 44. And all who believed were together and what? Had all things in common. What does that mean? Keep reading. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and they were distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. What's happening right here? Look at this. They are selling their proper property voluntarily to meet each other's needs. Now, this is not the beginning of communism. Okay? No one is making them do this. They're not saying, all right, here's the thing. You want in? Sell all your stuff. This is a response to the gospel saving them. This is a response to a new heart that they're looking out and they're seeing poor and broken people. And they're saying, I have an extra house. I'm selling it. I have an extra coat. I'm selling it. I have an extra whatever. I'm selling it. And they're distributing the needs to meet the, distributing the proceeds to meet the needs. First John three seventeen says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees a brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in that person? I pray that the spirit of God would convict our hearts this morning. Religious, moralistic people who've grown up in church, who their life doesn't look like what we're presenting here today. I hope we're cut to the heart. Your life doesn't look like this because you don't believe like this. All who were, all who believed were together. This is a, this is starts with what we believe. It starts with faith. I'm going to get there in a second. I'm going to jump ahead. So we see that all these individuals, they had these individual identities and now they've been reshaped into family. And now we're seeing that they're being kind of shaped into more than just family, but servants to one another. Can you imagine selling some of your things to meet the needs of Christians in your community? This new spirit-filled gospel-centered community is radically loving and radically self-sacrificial. They are donating their resources, not just their extra, not just their tithes. They're already giving their tithes. This is above and beyond. They're selling things to provide for the poor. These believers are radically generous. Let's keep reading. Verse 46. And day by day, Oh, day by day, not week by week, not Sunday by Sunday, day by day, 
attending the temple together. They would go there to preach in the temple steps, the gospel, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So we see two locations where they're living their life in the temple and at home. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And look at this. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. Every single day, people are coming to Jesus Christ in this early church. Every single day, people are being converted and given new hearts. Why? Because of this lifestyle of this early church and because of God's spirit at work. So I want you to see, we see them, out, we see them getting the identity of family, of servants, of learners, and also missionaries. Now, what, what does this look like in your life? Can I tell you that? Listen to me. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've had a new heart given to you, you've been made into a learner, you've been made into family, you've been made into a servant, you've been made into a missionary. That's happened. If, you, if you've really been converted, that's happened inside of you. You might be really bad at it. That's okay. You might be really bad at it. You might be just learning it. That's okay. Are you moving in that direction? Are you heading that way? Are you be, being pulled into this type of life? If not, I doubt you're converted. And when we look at this, one of the things that shocks me, like this is, this is what I want to see. I want to see people being day by day added to the kingdom. I want to see this type of life, this type of generosity, this type of love for one another. I'm going to see it taking place. And guess what I don't see? I don't see preachers up there giving this program, that handing out tracts or coming on in and teaching people anything about this kind of stuff. I just see people living normal lives. They're living these normal lives of worship. See, being a missionary is really just all about worship. And if you think worship is just like the music, that's not worship. We worship, it's not just worship. We worship God with our whole lives. We enjoy him. And we want others to enjoy him as well. We want people to know the joy, the peace, the satisfaction that we have found in a right relationship with God and his people. And this, what we see in this text, this is really attractive to people outside the community. Converts are not being brought in by flashy marketing. They're not Facebooking this to get people out. They're not tweeting. They don't have banners hung up. This isn't a program put on by church leaders. It's the common life, the koinonia, the common life of worship that is so attractive to those outside the community. It's the way they are loving one another and the way they are taking care of one another where people are saying, something's got to be different about these people. See, around here we, we say a lot that like we want our believers to live a normal life with gospel intentionality. And a lot of people shake their head and have no idea what that means. So then we try to, we, we try to change it. We say, okay, we want you to live a life that demands the gospel explanation. People go, no idea. Here's what we mean. This is exactly what we mean. These believers live their lives so united, 
so generously, so open to the community that it could only be explained through their doctrine, through their sacraments, and through their prayers. What do you mean? Why are you selling your possessions and giving them to the poor? (laughs) You worked hard for your money. Right? Why are you selling your possessions and giving them to the poor? The answer is found in my doctrine. Though Jesus was rich, for our sake, he became poor. Why are you giving your stuff away like that? The answer is in our sacrament. Jesus was broken for us. His precious blood was poured out for us. He spent himself in order to save us. How could we receive that into ourselves and then be stingy with our brothers and sisters in Christ? And guess what? This kind of life is attractive to outsiders. So people are being converted and they're added to the church daily. What about you? Has your life been radically reshaped since believing the gospel? Are you this self-sacrificial? Are you this generous? Are other people this involved in your life on the daily? Does the normal way you live your life involve unbelievers? Do you even rub shoulders with them? Do you even talk with them? Do you even eat with them? Does it then bring them into the presence of God? Does it bring, do they see this life of worship and find it attractive? Are you passionately devoted to learning more of the gospel, to learning doctrine? How open, I'm going to just keep going. How open is your home? How often do you share meals with others in your home? Do you even pray before meals? We need to check ourselves, church. Acts 2, 42 through 47, show us what lives that have been changed by the gospel look like. Do our lives look like that? Let me answer it. Let me say it a different way. If you're a disciple of Jesus, this is what he's doing by his spirit inside of you. You're being moved progressively towards what this looks like. If you're not, you're probably more a disciple of our culture and a disciple of American Christianity than you are of true Christianity. Right? We just want a little Sunday feel good. We want that whole salvation thing to be taken care of. So now we can go on and live our life how we want to live it. And we wonder why the church is in rapid decline. We wonder why the, the, the most unheard of young person to be in this room right now, statistically, is a young man in his 30s. He's almost extinct across the church, across the world right now. Why? Because he's looking around and he's seeing moralism. He's seeing this version of Christianity, but he's not seeing the real thing. So he throws it out. And he rejects. This is what's... He's rejecting a fake, 
false version of Christianity. But he thinks it's the real one. He thinks he knows what Christianity's about. My atheistic friend, he thinks he knows, he thinks he gets it. He th- he's just rejecting moralism. He doesn't get what, it, what the heart of it is. Listen, I'm going to tell you this. Doctrine is so important. And if you're in this room and you're like, I don't like doctrine. That's doctrine. Just bad doctrine. They could live this way because they'd experienced doctrine. I'm going to use a big word. Missio Dei. Two words, actually. The doctrine of the Missio Dei. The doctrine of the mission of God. What does that mean? That means that God saves sinners. They don't, he doesn't make it possible for them to save themselves. He saves sinners. The Missio, Missio Dei means this. God looked out and he loved us. So he did what? He sent God is a missionary God. He sent his son, Jesus, to this world to be the perfect missionary for us and save us. Then what does Jesus do? He ascends. And then what does he do? He sends the the spirit. So the father sent the son. The son goes back and the son sends the spirit. And now what we see in Acts 2 is the father, son, and spirit send the church. You're sent. You're on mission. You are a missionary. You've been filled with the Spirit of God to be on mission. And these people, they got that. They, they realized the implications of what that meant. That they didn't go searching for God and find God and save themselves. God came searching for them. And when you get that, see, these, these believers got it. They realized that that means they're saved all the way back from... If you drill down to the bottom of all of their salvation, you don't find any of their own works. It's all God. And that's grace. And that radically changes a person. See, when a person's been saved by grace, they realize there's there's like, there's an oh crap moment when you realize you've been saved by grace. You're like, yes, I've received your grace. Oh crap. That means I have no rights. That means I can't object to anything anymore because I deserve hell and condemnation. So everything else above that's kind of a bonus. I have no rights. God can ask anything of me. And how could I refuse him? He didn't refuse me. He gave me his own son to purchase my salvation. If it's all grace. See, nobody walks, nobody pulls their paycheck out on Friday morning and go, hallelujah, praise be the mighty God. Oh, what a glorious day. I feel so thankful for this. This is going to change my life. We pull out our paychecks and we go, freaking government, right? Put it in the bag. That's what we do. Why? We earned that. There's no grace in that. We earned every penny of it. We put in our time. We will spend that money however we want to spend that money. But not with grace. With grace, we didn't, our works didn't have anything to do with it. It's all his. So when he asked for it back, how could we refuse? Can I ask you this? Do you live like you saved yourself? Or do you live like you've been saved by grace? 
I, I'm doubting if I should read this quote, but I'm going to go ahead and read it anyways for some of you nerds who like this kind of stuff, like me. There's an old guy from the 16th century named Henry Skugel. And uh, listen to this quote. And that's going to be the second half, I think. Never does a soul know, listen to this word, what a solid joy and substantial pleasure is. Why does he say solid joy? Because all of our joys that are connected to the world, they're not solid. They can be taken away from us. If your joy is in money, that can go in a moment. If your joy is in health, that could go in a moment. If your joy is in your children, that could go in a moment. He says, never will we know what a solid and immovable joy, a substantial pleasure is until once being weary of itself, being weary of ourself, it renounces all propriety and it gives itself up to the author of its being. And it feels itself become a hallowed and devoted thing and can say from an inward sense and feeling, my beloved is mine. I account all his interest mine own and I am his. And I am content to be anything for him. And I care not for myself, but that I may serve him. What's he saying? I'll never be happy. I'll never find my joy until I'm devoted to God himself. Till my heart says, my beloved is mine and I am his. And I I can, then when I have that, I can renounce all other things. See, the reason you can't give your money away is because your identity is in your money. You're afraid to give it away. But when you really know I am his and he is mine, he can ask anything from you and you freely give it because it's not your identity. Some of you are way more devoted to your kids' athletic pursuits than you are to doctrine, community, and gathering with God's people to celebrate the sacraments and prayers. Listen, that's inconsistent as a disciple of Jesus. And your kids are watching you and they're learning how to worship Don't be surprised when they worship something else other than Jesus Christ. Don't be surprised. Do you hoard money? Your kids are watching. Don't be surprised. Do you worship the accumulation of things? I don't care if Jesus is on your lips. They learn by your life. Don't be surprised. Some of us are more devoted to our favorite sports teams than we are to God. I was going to take that line out if Alabama lost last night. Just playing. Are you devoted to doctrine? Are you dedicated to the Christian fellowship? Are you devoted to being one with people who are Christians? Do you know how to, do you know how you do it? Do you know how, like, we don't want this until we're converted. We don't want this until we have a new heart. See, some of you right now are, you're bitter against other Christians. Maybe you're bitter against me for saying this today. And you've got to be devoted. You have to be devoted to the fellowship. How do you do it? You praise the broken Lord. You get rid of your bitterness. It's inconsistent with the broken Lord. Why were they breaking the body? He's been broken for us. You can't praise the one who's been broken for you while being bitter with someone else. That's inconsistent. You can't praise God for opening up heaven and sending his son while keeping your house closed to outsiders. It's inconsistent. 
You don't really believe it. That's proof that you don't believe that God really sent his son by sheer grace. You can't praise God for his rich generosity in sending heaven's best in Jesus while being stingy with your finances. It's inconsistent. Do you, do you give 10% of your gross income to God's work? No, you're not praising God for his generosity. You're forgetting the gospel. Do you look to others and judge their behavior before you help them out financially? Oh, they're irresponsible. They need to get a better job. They need to go back to school. It's their own fault for the mess they're in. You can't be praising God for his grace to you while you're standing in judgment upon your brother and sister. It's inconsistent. Listen, you actually have to forget the gospel to look down on someone. When you see a poor person, you see yourself if you're looking through the gospel. That's who you were and Christ came and died for you. You see a lazy person, that's who you were and Christ came and died for you. You see a moralistic, do-gooder, religious, proud, arrogant person, that's who you were when Jesus came and died for you. No, you don't actually like cognitively forget that Jesus died on the cross. You forget what it means. You forget the implications. You forget that it's all grace. Guys, listen, I'm, if you haven't found out already, I'm not really interested in having a big crowd on Sunday morning. This is what I want. Disciples of Jesus who smell like Jesus who are radically self-sacrificial, radically open, radically humble, radically kind, radically generous, where the world goes, something is different about those people. Tell me what it is. I, and we tell them doctrine, and we, t- we break bread, and we show them in our sacraments, and they see it in our prayers. That's the only explanation we have. It's not, yep, I got a good education, and I'm pretty much awesome. Nothing. But the gospel should be able to explain how we live our life. And I believe the deeper we understand the gospel, the more our lives are going to look like these disciples in the early church. And the only way that's going to happen. Listen to me. I hope every person in this room has been cut to the heart this morning. I hope you've seen your own inconsistencies. I hope you feel it. I hope you're convicted. I hope you feel guilty. I hope you feel that right now. And now, as you feel it, listen to the gospel right now. The only way we're going to grow and get this is by seeing where we fall short. But also, seeing where Jesus lived this life perfectly for us. That we see where we fall short, we repent and and seek God's forgiveness and grace and we remember by faith that Jesus' perfection has been counted to us by grace. Believers, we do not stand before God in our own works. We stand before God in the works of Jesus. So turn from your selfishness. Turn from your individualism. Turn from it and embrace the gospel. The one who's been poured out on our behalf. 
The one who stands righteous before God on our behalf. Only by turning to the gospel will he set our hearts free to live like this. And I think this is what the world needs. The world needs to encounter believers who are so radically generous. So radically gospel-centered that it all points back to the work that God's done in their heart. Why are you like this? I have no idea. God did it in me. And most of the time I don't feel like doing this. I don't feel like opening my house. I don't feel like telling you my issues. I don't feel like asking for help. I don't feel like having neighbors over. I don't feel like these things. But God has done something different in my heart. And I, how could I not do these things when I see what he's done for me? How could I not? Father, we are religious. We are inconsistent. We are so far from the truth of who you are and the work that you've done. We would rather be moral than weak. Would you do something by your spirit through your grace? Would you give us a radical comprehension of the gospel? A radical experience of this doctrine that you you came for us when we were at our worst. But you let that sink down that you love us. Not because of anything we've ever done or ever will do. You love us because in Deuteronomy, you said, I love you because I love you. What? Your great love changes people. Would you destroy the cultural barriers that we put to the gospel? Our six-foot privacy fences and our, our garages that we can drive in and shut and try to shut the world out and shut the neighbors out. Would you break down those barriers? The individualism that we feel we want a private religion. Would you break down that barrier? We work hard for our money and we want to spend it the way we want to spend it. Would you break down that barrier? Would you create in us generous hearts? And Father, would you give us a love for our neighbor? A genuine love, a care, a desire to see them experience freedom in Christ and joy and worship. Would you do this in our hearts? It's all for your glory, for your namesake, for your mission. And as we come to the Lord's table and we break this bread, it's literally being broken for us. May we be reminded how you gave up everything. The only reason we're here, the only reason we're saved, the only reason we're new, the only reason we have this grace is because Jesus was willing to be broken. God, who had everything, was willing to be broken. May that change us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.